she said, you know, there's something that does the laundry. There's something that cooks and talks to people and eats. So what is that? That's what sent me off on the journey. Instead of looking outside of yourself for answers, look inside. Jason Quinn, Ida Pope's name, began practicing Zen in 1997 with the Dharma Sound Zen Center in Seattle. In 1999, feeling ready for a deeper commitment, he moved into the Providence Zen Center to train as a monk, where he lived for the following nine years, sitting several 90- and 30-day retreats. Jason received Inca, or permission to teach, in 2015. He is vice abbot of Empty Gate Zen Center in Berkeley, California, and guides the Quantum School of Zen's online Sangha. Presently, he lives in Santa Clara, California with his wife and children and leads retreats throughout the United States. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. So Jason, you started practicing in 1997, and within just a couple of years, you made the decision to become a monastic, which is a pretty serious decision, uh, one that isn't that common here in the West. And I'm wondering what led to that decision? What, what brought you to that point of trying to live as a monastic here in the West? I would say that life appeared. <laughs> and then disappeared. So there was a point in 1997 where everything fell apart. So we have this kind of American dream of the great job, getting married, having a family, having a nice house, just having a good situation. Yet at this point in 1997, everything was gone. So I started going really crazy. And uh, one of my friends at work said, you know, perhaps you should see a therapist. And I said, no, there's no way I'm going to see a therapist because therapists are for crazy people. <laughs> and then she said, well, that's not true. But if it was, you're crazy <laughs> right now. So I said, okay, it probably can't hurt to visit this uh, person and, and see if something can appear. So I went to this therapist by myself, and she was very interesting. She had like a, a Eastern and Western practice. She'd practiced some type of meditation or something. I'm not quite sure what it was. And it was very great talking to her. Um, she was very wise, had a lot of insights. And she was asking me about music. She said, you mentioned many times that you are music and music is you. So what percent of music is you? So I instantly said, 90%. She said, really? 90%? Yeah, 90%. Then she said, 
when you're not playing music, what are you? And I was stuck. I was embarrassed at first. I was turning red and then blue. <laughs> and then I just couldn't answer her. So I said, I don't know. And then she said, perhaps you should investigate that. So she said, you know, there's something that does the laundry. There's something that cooks and talks to people and eats. So what is that? So that's what sent me off on the journey. So she thought, instead of looking outside of yourself for answers, look inside. So automatically, meditation appeared in my mind, and I don't even know what that meant. So then um, my friend at the time who I was playing music with, he was interested in meditation. So my friend suggested we go to this meditation place. I'm not sure what kind of meditation it was. I know it was based on some of an Indian tradition. They had um, lots of music and uh, sitting meditation. And it was interesting because I played tabla at the time, and which is an Indian percussion instrument. So they would do these kind of devotional songs. Basically, they would sit for one hour and then do this music. So I was in love with that. I was like, wow, cool. I can play my tablas in here because they didn't have a tabla player and, and join them from the music. The sitting meditation, however, was very difficult and there was very little instruction. Basically, I was told, sit down and try not to think of anything. And they sat for one hour. And it was the most miserable you know, time I could imagine. So I liked the food and I liked the music. So I, I stuck around for a little bit. And then I was just getting curious. I, I asked one of the leaders, I said, well, you talk about when we practice meditation that our minds can become clear. Well, then what? He didn't have a very clear answer. And I'm not sure why I asked that. I guess because I was questioning everything in my life. Then what? You know, if I get this job, then what? If I get this relationship, then what? So it wasn't satisfying. So I left and I looked in some local magazine and there was a, uh, a Zen center in Seattle at that time called the Dharma Sound Zen Center, and they had a orientation on Tuesday. So I went to the orientation, and the first thing the person said to me was, Zen means, what are you? And when I heard that, I was like, this is the place. I don't care what they do, what the form is. <laughs> like this is, what I, this is what I need. This is what I'm looking for. So this question was also, you know, all obviously resonating at that time. So I made that connection. So yeah, I said, I want to understand that. I want to do that. I want to be able to help people. How can I be able to help? And then the person given the orientation said, well, what are you doing right now? And I said, uh, I'm just sitting here. I'm talking to you. <laughs> and he said, good. And it was funny because in my gut, that just rang. It made sense. Like, yes, this is real. Like, I can make a connection with it. But, you know, of course, my thinking was, well, how can sitting here talking to you help this world? So that's what set me on the journey of um, the practice, which connects to becoming a monk is because that became the most important thing in my life, is trying to understand who I was, what I was, and then understand what my real job is, not just my career, but what is my job as a human being? So that because of all the loss, you know, losing the job, losing the marriage, 
not being able to play music very, you know, very much. This became my new passion is trying to understand myself and figure out how to use that in my life. And so I was thinking about what's the best way I can meditate? What's the most opportunity I can get to meditate? So then the person who gave the orientation happened to be a monk. So he taught me, he talked a lot about his uh, monastic life. And so that's what got me very interested in becoming a monastic. It's like, wow, full time, like helping people, sitting retreats, like this is exactly what I want to do. So it wasn't actually the, the monastic lifestyle that I was attracted to, which in our tradition includes, you know, you wearing uh, a gray kind of robes, staying celibate, that kind of the lifestyle of a monk, I wasn't so attracted to. I was very attracted to the practice. That's why I uh, eventually went to the Providence Zen Center and, and started monastic training. Training to becoming a monk was about nine years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, when I was, before I moved to Providence, I actually went, so be, it, at this time, most teachers would recommend somebody to sit a long retreat before starting monastic training. Because usually after that 90-day retreat of silence, they usually say, heck no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, sure, it sounds good. So I actually went to Korea to set a 90-day retreat. And after oh. that, I was I was even more inspired. I'm like, yes, uh-huh. this, this is the life. Just practice all the time. So uh, when I came back to Seattle, I was thinking of training at a different temple for the summer. But um, who eventually became my teacher, Zen Master De Kuang, he recommended that I go to the Providence Zen Center. That's where he lived, and he was leading a retreat and sit that summer retreat. So I, I just set that summer retreat was at that time was only three weeks, and it was during that retreat they asked me if I wanted to move to the Providence Zen Center because their house master was um, moving to Korea. They didn't have anybody. Plus, there was always there was already a monastic community there. So it seemed like it was just a perfect fit. Wow. So yeah, that was uh yeah, 1999. And you stayed there. So I stayed there till 2008. So I I I did this uh monastic and training which is it's called a hangjaw period. To me it's kind of like the analogy of dating. So you oh. you know you, you date someone, you kind of get to know them, you get the feel for it. There's no commitment, right? So it's kind of like that. So people can start this hangjaw period. It's usually 1 to 2 years. And to to kind of live the monastic life, wear the clothes, except they're wearing brown for training, uh, practicing with people, um, living at the Zen Center, helping the temple. So yeah, I, I did my monastic training there and became a novice monk. So novice monk is kind of like becoming engaged, right? So you're making mm-hmm. more of a commitment. It's still, you're not completely married or committed, but it, the direction is, yes, we're engaged, we're going to do this. So that's what the kind of uh, novice training is. And uh, that's uh, two to three years, I believe, of training. It just depends on the place. And so I, I did that training and then eventually took the full monastic precepts, which is uh, becoming, they call it a bhikkhu. So it's over 250 some precepts. And that's like being fully committed to monastic life. Right. No more garlic. <laughs> <laughs> there, Yeah, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite of the monastic precepts. Yeah, there's some interesting ones. 
so you know nine you know to sum up that your your life as a monastic would be really difficult but i'm wondering if there there are some memories that return to you about that really sort of capture what it was like to be a, a monastic to be you know so fully committed most people who are doing zen training buddhist training aren't interested in that path and you know maybe we do half an hour a day or something like that or if that much what's it like to sit multiple hours every day well that's the interesting part because when i first moved to the providence zen center i thought oh great now i can sit all the three-month retreats all the summer <laughs> retreats yeah. and i'm very excited about that and the first winter kilti that was coming up, I was getting very excited. Then my teacher said, so by the way, you'll be uh, working down at the Zen Center this winter, uh, you know, taking care of the whole Zen Center, meaning picking up people, going shopping, doing the cooking, taking care of the guests. <laughs> so I was like, oh. That, so there was actually no sitting hardly. And I was so tired that sometimes I couldn't even make morning practice, right? I was oh, working wow. so much. Second winter comes along. Oh, by the way, you're at the Zen Center working. <laughs> oh, wow. So yeah, this is kind of the idea. You know, we all have ideas of how life should be or what our relationship should be like or our career or work. So I had this idea too, like, oh, the monastic life is great. You can just sit all the time. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, no, I was working my ass off. <laughs> all of the time. So, it, and it was good because it gave me this question, like, why am I doing this? This is crazy, right? It's like, yeah. I'm supposed to be sitting. This is what it's about. And I realized, and it was, it was from picking up people uh, uh, at the airport who were coming to the long retreat, this Kilche, and then taking people back to the airport who's maybe finished their one week or two weeks of sitting the, the retreat. And just to see their face, you know, like so grateful, you know, that they had um, this place to go to, to practice. And, you know, just just seeing the people and seeing how much um, it was appreciated, like doing all the shopping for the, the long retreat, the Kilche. And I was like, ah, I saw that, you know, the kind of the true meaning of, of, of helping, right? It's not just doing what you want, it's doing what's needed. So that's what really kept me well, staying there and saying, no, I, I just want to sit. So yeah, later, you know, as I got older and started older, meaning uh, in monastic training, I got to sit a lot of long retreats. But all of it was similar, meaning it was very simple life. It was difficult, but it was simple. Meaning there was just one job was to take care of the temple and practice. You know, so one thing I loved about the monastic life was the simplicity. Again, it was it was hard because sometimes there was a lot of work and we were a little overwhelmed. But any any time I was getting upset or off track or frustrated, I would just see that person come into the Zen Center for the first time. And I saw myself when I went to the Zen Center for the first time, somebody really wanting to investigate and, and to understand themselves and find purpose. So that always kept me. Uh, on track. And then after you know nine years or so, you decided to no longer be monastic. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what happened there? You know, it's kind of funny. You know, we it's just like people ask me, wait, what happened in the first marriage? Like, why did you get divorced? I have yeah. I have my story and she has her story. Like I, I don't really know, to be honest, what's true. 
So right. it's kind of like the, I can think about because I used to get the question a lot more. It's been a while, you know, since I disrobed, so I don't get the question as much. But yeah, I have my version of why I stopped being a monastic. Um, yeah. Whether whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I do remember that I had to start listening to intuition. And this is something I teach a lot, you know, like, again, we have these plans and these ideas and these aspirations and goals, but it comes down to really listening to our intuition, you know, perceiving what's around us clearly, and then responding to that. And so I knew something wasn't right, uh, you know, around 2007, 2008. And I'm not sure what that means, not right, just intuitively, like, I got to I got to try something. And it wasn't about disrobing at that time. It was about, you know, um, for me, it was moving. You know, I've talked about, it's funny, I moved to Berkeley eventually in 2008. But I've been talking to the, the guiding teacher there about that since I moved to Providence, you know, like mm. in like 2000, 2001, because um, I, I visited Berkeley and did a retreat and I fell in love with it. You know, I'm originally from California. So, you know, California always felt like home. Uh, but the Zen Center was really great there. So him and I had been talking about it for a while, but to actually do it was another thing, and it took all those years. So in 2008, I just, I have to go. I'm not sure why, but I have to go. And it was- And by go, you mean move to Berkeley? Yeah, moving to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And so many people weren't happy with that idea and decision. Um, I remember one of the head teacher in our school was very upset. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Providence Center needs your help. What are you going to Berkeley for? They don't need you. And it was so, and then you have that, right? So other people saying, oh, you shouldn't do it. It's not a good decision, right. but I had to listen to my gut, listen to my intuition. And that's something I learned too, even through my divorce at that time is just it was the first time I had this sense of this intuition, like I got to follow that. Even though people think I'm this bad person or doing the wrong thing, I have to trust it. So I did. So that's when I moved to Berkeley, 2008, and you know was, was living there by myself. Berkeley's not residential, so I was living in the loft, which was in the office. Um, <laughs> I started a morning practice every morning. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was very good for me because... Uh, it was the first time that I actually lived alone. You know, I lived with my my family, obviously, as when I was a child. Then immediately moved in with my girlfriend at the time. We moved to Seattle, and then immediately moved into a Zen center. So it was the right. first time. I was like, "Wow, by myself here. This is strange." And it was good, right? Because usually, people either want to be by themselves and they can't live with other people, or they're too dependent, right? They have to live with other people because they can't function on their own. So I always say it's good to have a balance. You know, we should be able to be by ourselves and be content and also be able to live with people. So yeah, so I was living there and uh, yeah, just having a good time, just being by myself. You know, there was the morning and, and evening practice where I would see people. It was a great experience. And yeah, I started to be more clear about my connection to being a monastic, like it was very clear that I wanted to practice and it was very clear that I wanted to help people. And it was very clear that I wanted to help the Zen center. 
But the monastic part, just like I mentioned before, never had a connection to the actual monastic lifestyle. And plus, America is very difficult to be a monastic. Right. Reason being is, you know, first of all, society doesn't really have a connection to it. You know, we're starting to learn about monks more, monks and nuns. But they don't, you know, they don't really understand what it is. So I always remember like there was a separation I felt like, and it could have been me just making it up, but the separation like people would say like monastics are, oh, of course they can do it because they don't have responsibilities, you know, they don't have children and jobs and things like that, you know, so of course they can practice. So there's kind of that disconnection, like monks were, monks and nuns were the special people uh, that of course they were able to attain this clarity because of their situation. Which we you know, we know that's not true. You know, maybe <laughs> monastics have some challenges, but or lay life has some challenges, but it's not true. So, yeah, there was kind of that, and um, feeling like I wasn't connecting, yeah, to the outside world very much. You know, like there was been times. Sometimes, you know, this is just between you and me and the other hundreds of people who are listening to this, <laughs> right? You know, there's times that I would sneak out uh, and go drinking. Oh, yeah. Wow. Which, as a monastic, you shouldn't do. But I did. And, and it was funny because it wasn't just for the drinking. It's because there was this connection I had with people. Like, when they, if I'm with somebody and they, they're drinking, they really open up. Yeah, and they start getting deep and talking about life and and kind of like this big question. Yeah, what is it to be a human being? You know, what is what is our purpose? So that's what I would do. I would, you know, it's funny. I would go to the bar, meet some people. Would you go in your in your grave? No, box? I went uh, kind of. I mean, I wore the pants, but I wore like a you know REI coat or something over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of little disguise. Yeah, but every time I did that, it wasn't that often. But every time I did it. I would meet people and instantly we would just get into the deep of it, you know, talking about life, talking about meaning and purpose and why we're here. And I love that. You know, I love being able to do that. It's funny because I don't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> or as much. So, uh, so oh, you've got kids. Now. Yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> so there was that aspect of it too. Just wanting to uh, connect not not standing out so much, you know, because wherever I went, I stood out as a monk because of the clothes and the shaved head, even though I still have a shaved head, but mostly the clothes. Again, I can't quite put it in words, but it was this intuitive feeling like to make my relationship clear with the Sangha and to, f to be more helpful than disrobing to me was correct. I don't think there was, yeah, again, any specific reason except, you know, maybe trying to make this uh, connection to everybody. So th that was the biggest reason. It was like, what, why do it? I mean, what's the point? It doesn't matter if I do it or not, you know? So I just, again, followed my gut. I went through it. So in like 2010, I think it was the fall, can't remember quite. Zen Master Daekwong was visiting Berkeley. And we had the official ceremony, disrobing ceremony. So we did. I did it correctly. Some you've heard stories of some people quitting monastic life and just, you know, yeah, they just walk away, wake up in the middle of the night and <laughs> get on the plane. <laughs> and that's happened quite a lot. But I decided, nope, yeah. I'm going to do it clear. I want to be clear. 
And my whole point yeah. is being clear with the sangha. And it felt like the final piece for me because it was like, yeah, I, I like to sit, I like to help people, I love helping the Zen Center. But it was the final piece of the puzzle for me was making the outside relationship clear. Well, you know, one thing that you said, you know, resonates with with stuff I've heard you say elsewhere, just in terms of the teaching that Zen Master Sung San had, which is, uh, you know, what makes things relevant for this practice mm -hmm. right now? Right. And I've heard you say this particularly in, in relationship to the, the Kungans or the Koans. You know, I don't want to I'll probably mess up the way that I've heard you say it. So I, I'll <laughs> try to sort of lead you in a direction so you can say it yourself. But, you know, he changed some of the, the kungans, the koans. Um, they're based on traditional ones, but then he changed them. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why you think he changed them or what he said about why he changed them. And, right. Because I think that, that also has to do with what's, what is this life or what's, what's right now. Right. He often would say that our practice is realizing enlightenment. I was going to say get enlightenment, but you can't get enlightenment because we are already enlightened. So realizing this enlightenment, and he said a lot of practices stop there, right? Just per, so that means perceiving our true self, yeah, perceiving this enlightenment, this original nature. But he said that what's more important is what is enlightenment's job? And I always found that fascinating. What is enlightenment's job? He would mention, a, you mentioned koans. So uh, for those who don't know, those are kind of like questions or situations that are presented to you. They sound like they're riddles, um, but they're not riddles. They're, uh, <laughs> they're questions to help us kind of cut through our conceptual thinking. You know, I always say that our, our, our original mind is like a clear mirror. It just reflects everything as it is. Unfortunately, this mirror is covered by this cloud, and I call it, I call it the cloud of opposites thinking. Right on this mirror, we have we write I, and then there's you. Now the whole universe is in opposites. Now we have good, bad, like, dislike, black, white, Democrat, Republican. It goes on and on and on and on. There's nothing inherently wrong with this view, but the problem is we start to mistake this view for the truth. So everyone has a view. I have my view. You have your view. Everybody has a view. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we start seeing it as truth, that's when we get into a problem. So if you see any kind of religious or political fighting, it's because my view is correct and your view is not. <laughs> Even if it's a Buddhist, a Buddhist view, it can, you could, it's still a cloud. Mm -hmm. So I always say it's important to, to take that away. So that's this kind of awakening or enlightenment. But then like, what's its job? How does that function? So the Kongans are to help us kind of pierce through this view so we can see clearly and perceive things as they are. And then when we can see things clearly and as they are, then we can respond in a clear and helpful way. Usually we can't respond in a clear and helpful way because our minds are not clear. We're not seeing what's in front of us clearly. So a lot, you know, back when uh, Zen was flourishing in China, they used Kongans 
koans for, first of all, to, yeah, perceive our true self, perceive this enlightenment. Um, but also the teachers would use it to test people's enlightenment, right? So they would they could validate if someone has attained um, the teaching. And then they would, you know, give them transmission and that student will become a teacher. So, and also back then too, mostly monks and nuns were practicing Zen. And they had a very simple life, right? Their job was to sit. They're, most of the time, food was given to them, uh, clothing was given to, the, to them, a place to practice was given to them. And so all they had to do is sit. So they had a very simple life. So the function of enlightenment, or as you know, uh, Zen Master Sung Song say, enlightenment's job wasn't so important. It wasn't a priority. Mm -hmm. So over time, Kongans got to be very eccentric. So people were using Kongans as a word game and this kind of Dharma combat. Um, it kind of became a game for the elite, right? So the stone girl had a baby. What does this mean, right? It started taking uh, this form that didn't apply to everyday life, right? So Kongans were not connecting to everyday life anymore. They were just, just again, this kind of uh, word game for the elite. So that's why Zen Master Sung Song said Zen died out of China because of this, right? Because it didn't connect to everyday life. So people were like, this is crazy. It doesn't have any meaning. So when Zen Master Sung Song was teaching in the West, he wanted the koans to connect to everyday life. So he didn't actually change the koans. The koans are the same. You know, there's uh, oh. traditionally 1700, but we still use the same koans they did in China, Korea, Japan. But the response to the kongan changed, right? So it's not a just about perceiving truth. So that means just seeing things for what they are, like the clear mirror. So you can look at, you know, I'm looking at the sky, I look out, uh, the sun is rising, right? The trees are swaying back and forth. Yeah, that's the truth. But how, does, how do we use that in our life? And so that's why he wanted Zen, which means the kongans, the sitting, the chanting, connect to everyday life. Because in the West, most people are lay people and they have very busy, complicated lives. You know, we got jobs, careers, families, school, you know, friends. So, you know, all of the stuff that we have to do. And we're using our mind all of the time. We're using our thinking all the time. So we usually get lost in it. And we're not able to kind of connect to the situation and respond. So he changed the way uh, we respond to the kongans. And here's an example. It's not an official kongan, but he would say, a baby is just wet its diapers. What does this mean? Wah. Yeah, right. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Good. Most traditions. <laughs> yeah is that's the answer. And that's right. That means become one because if we, we have to become one. Right. If we don't become one, then we can't connect with other people and we can't connect to situations, right? So yeah, you have to become oh. one. That's why you said if someone's sad, if you're totally connected to that person, you're sad, right? Oh, right. So yeah. So now my next answer would be to change the diaper. Right. So your first answer was, yeah, that's true. That was kind of like the original style. Become one. Right. You become the baby. 
Right. And there's, again, that's very important, but it's not complete. Like right. if your, uh, you know, friend or spouse is mad, do you get mad? If somebody is hungry, what do you, do you just get hungry? No, we have to do something. So yeah, so you said changing the diaper. So the way we would just respond or the way Zen Master Sung Song would teach Kongans is, yeah, you change the diaper. That's complete right. because you're, first of all, you're perceiving the truth and then you're responding to that truth. So that's the way we use kongans, that's the way we use the sitting, that's the way we use the chanting, is it's not just to get a good feeling and a clear mind, it's how we use that clear mind in our life from moment to moment. That's a really, that's a really cool shift. Right away, I was like, oh, it's wah. And then but now, I see, now I see that the answer is, yeah, you change the diaper. Exactly. Right? That's really life. That's right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Just perceiving. You know, Zen Master Sung Sung would also say it's very easy to get enlightenment. Very mm. easy. But very difficult to, to use it in our life, right? Because, because there's so many different situations, so many things happening, so many different kinds of people. You know, usually we mm. we stay around people we connect with or like or have something in common with, and we just kind of shun away anyone else. But if your mind is clear, you can connect with anybody. Right. Now, just sort of feeding off of that mind is clear, there's another dimension of your teaching practice, which has to do with, uh, it's not it's not the cushion, it's not the anything else, it's nutrition, which is to me, quite interesting. Yeah, I've been um, focusing on that lately. Um, and that's what kind of like when I work with people one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll just, and it's nutrition and basically just being healthy. Because mm -hmm. one thing I did, usually it's this way. What I find mostly is um, people are trying to take care of their health. You know, maybe they're running, exercising on some kind of diet. But they're not taking care of the mind, right? Mm-hmm. You have to take care of the mind. You know, there's a story about this guy who would cut down trees for a living. And this is a time where there's no chainsaws, right? It's all done by an ax. Mm -hmm. So he gets a job. He gets hired. The boss is very happy because this guy's big, very strong, and thinks he's going to do very well. The first day, this man cuts down 12 trees. And that's pretty amazing. We're talking about big trees by hand. Mm -hmm. Second day, he cuts down eight trees. And he's thinking, gosh, maybe I didn't get enough to eat or maybe I should sleep a little bit more. Yeah, that'll help. Third day, he cuts down six trees. Now he's super worried. Like, I don't know what's going on. So he goes to the boss and tells him, I don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm trying to get enough rest, get enough to eat. But for some reason, I can't do any more. It's like I'm, I'm, getting, I'm cutting less and less every day. And then the boss said, let me ask you something. Uh, when is the last time you sharpened your axe? <laughs> and then the guy said, sharpen my axe? I don't have time to do that. I'm too busy cutting down trees. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so this is uh, most people's condition, right? So they're yeah, maybe taking care of their body, but they're not taking care of their mind, right? So 
that's where meditation practice helps, right? Is keeping that ax sharp. That means keeping our mind clear. Now, in my situation, it was the opposite. So I was practicing meditation. I was actually teaching at this time. You know, we're talking just, you know, year and a half, two years ago. But my body was suffering. So even though I was taking care of my mind, my body was suffering. I was getting overweight. And because of that, I was having severe heartburn. I was getting inflammation in my hands again. Yeah, uh, inflammation in the knees. So it was like hard to do bowing meditation or sometimes just walking. It would be pain in the knees. And I've always heard about people taking care of the bodies and doing stuff. But um, yeah, I found a, a method for me that really worked to help be healthy and meaning, you know, reduce that inflammation, get rid of the heartburn. Because I realized that, you know, it's just like whatever you do or say affects your mind, right? It affects mm -hmm. your life. So whatever you eat affects your body. So it has a natural result. You know, we're not talking about anything special here. You know, if you eat a lot of sugar and drink a lot of alcohol, et cetera, it just has a natural result. It's not good and it's not bad. It's just natural things happen. Just like if you're always grasping and wanting and, and have this kind of strong like and dislike mind and opinions, it has a natural result. So I started learning that body and mind are not separate. They only become separate when we, first of all, just take care of our mind, just focusing on that. Then we make this duality. Or if we're just taking care of our body and not our mind, it's separate. That's why we have right. problems. But just like I was talking about in Zen, which Zen is life, means perceiving what's in front of us clearly and responding to that. So if we're perceiving our body and our mind, which is not separate, we're just perceiving. Like you perceive hunger, then you eat. If you perceive that you're not hungry, don't eat. I mean, it's very simple, right? So if we do that, if we just take care of what's in front of us, then there's no separation, right? Then it's very powerful, right? The body and mind are one thing and they can function very well. But if we're just taking care of one and the other, then there's going to be a natural result. And that usually is some kind of problem. You know, when we were talking, getting ready for this interview, to me, it, I realized that I had never actually heard teachers uh, talk about the food that they're putting in. Mm as a certain dimension of their practice. And I, I was just very intrigued by it because most teachers are talking about some form of teaching or some sort of form of practice or, or how, you know, what the experience is that arises, which is so much about the mind or, you know, the experience. But beneath all of that, right, is this body, this body that's right. sort of holding us up. Well, that, yeah. Is, you know, Interesting point because there's a bunch of hormones. Basically, it's just we're running on hormones, right? Right. And what we do, what we eat affects those hormones. Right. Those hormones, some of them can affect your mood, you know? Right. And it can make you depressed. You can get low energy. I mean, even sleep is so important, you know? Like I was doing a period of time. Uh, several months ago, where I was getting up at 3 a.m., I was trying to get a lot of work done before my kids get up. And I did that for about three weeks, get up at 3 a.m., do a lot of work, and then you know, continue the day. But it was wearing me out. Right. And also emotionally and mentally, too, right? So it's, again, it's all connected. There's not, there's not this separate thing. So I, when I started learning about the science of like things that can make you depressed or, or uh, 
give you energy or slow you down. It's, you know, it's the stuff that's based on cause and effect. And that's, you know, Buddhism in general is based on cause and effect, right? Not just about theories. So yeah, I, I, I learned that the importance of it because I didn't do, in fact, I don't think I ever really took care of my body. I just kind of got along. And I think my mind was strong enough to get through a lot of things. Right. But the combination of the two is, is, is amazing. It's like two wings of a bird. You know, you can't have one without the other. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Jason Quinn encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by visiting his websites, meditationdirection.com and zenandtheartofketo.com. If you would like to sit a retreat with Jason, you can find that information at emptygatezen.com. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at providencezen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at providencezen.org videos. My name is Ian White-Marr. I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>